Right, so this is episode 32 of uh, Music and More. I think it's 32. I think it's 32 anyway. Um, and as usual, we've got Pete Fletcher on. How are you doing, Pete? Doing well, man. Doing well. So, uh, by the way, after last episode on, in the beginning, I talked about my boat uh, and how I almost drowned retrieving it. <laughs> We never really finished that story. Uh, so I started getting a bunch of messages on Twitter like, uh, did you get the boat? <laughs> uh, and so the short answer is yes. I did. I, uh, I waited until it went to the other end of the lake until it was about 20 yards away. And then I dove in and got it again. So, uh, yes, the boat has been retrieved and I am alive and well. <laughs> Yeah, I think you uh, gave quite a few people quite a lot of amusement with that image, Pete, to be honest. Especially <laughs> yeah. Dan. Especially Dan. I think Dan was seriously enjoying that. Yeah. But yeah, man, uh, glad you are doing well. Uh, yeah, uh, really excited this week because we have got the wonderful Jack Simpson on, who owns um, Iger Studios, uh, also Hyde Park Book Club, and is just an all-round real nice guy and, you know, a real sort of um, a real uh, prevalent figure in the Leeds music scene, obviously with Iger and Hyde Park Book Club, which is a venue as well, is it not, Jack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of uh, well, it's, it's kind of a bunch of things, really. But yeah, in the mm. basement, we've got a venue and then a smaller room that we started off in that we do little bits and bats. And then through the day, like kind of a bit of a kind of like cafe bar vibe. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that sounds really cool, actually. I was speaking to um, Organize about it recently, actually. Uh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. That sounds really interesting. But yeah, um, so I, I just thought it'd be cool to get you on and, uh, you know, talk about Iger and stuff like that. Talk about, you know, music in Leeds and how, to be honest, you know, you have you guys have become such a, a pivotal part of that, I would say, really. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a sort of over-egging the pudding to say that. I, you know, I think that the setup that you guys have created is um you know it's absolutely brilliant and it's great to have uh, a resource like that so close do you know what i mean um especially one that we've got such a great uh, relationship with as well and all the you know the great sort of recording equipment you've got down there and of course you've got the legendary will jackson in there which come on you know that that counts for a hell of a lot uh, it does it does yeah i'm curious how do you uh what, what makes you want to start such a business yeah that's a, that's a really good question i mean I guess starting Iger was really, um, you know, Adam, I think you've talked about uh, Ryan producing you on what would have been the fourth album. Yeah. And I've got questions about that fourth album and where it is. But, um, <laughs> I'm kind of hoping it's on, on a desk somewhere at Iger because it, it sounded amazing. We'll talk about um, it, man. We will, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, starting actually, starting Iger really was was it was Ryan's idea and Ryan's vision. And I regularly talk to people about how strong I think that that vision was really in yeah. that I've added what I've added, but really it's just um, to know there's some kind of genius in what he saw of bringing these different elements together that I think has just made it, it's just always worked like from the off from, you know, the time when it was just pretty much you guys and uh, Ryan, and then we've expanded round and since there's been kind of, you know, Damon Albans been there and Morris has been there and all kinds of people, but yeah, so really that was I'd so I'd played in bands um, and and really probably followed the path that a lot of people follow really when Britpop was kind of like massive and just yeah. the sense that you suddenly had that well look I could do that right and and and, and I think and I, I'd be interested in what you guys think but really there was something kind of really important about bands like Oasis and the Stone Roses bands like that kind of because they kind of they kind of came from where I came from right like I grew up in like East Leeds mm-hmm. um, and and looking at those and maybe as models for men as well have kind of seen you know like this is something you could be but then it kind of like partly just messed everything up from being in bands and the kind of slightly unhealthy lifestyle that's <laughs> yes. that's around that and then come out the other side and I'd started to kind of sort life out and I'd started a little magazine with a friend called Tony Wilby called Vibrations and really that was driven by kind of growing up in Leeds but the sense that the music scene was largely a student scene and that, not that I was kind of against the student scene, but when you had bands that eventually came through, like the Pigeon Detectives and and the Kaiser Chiefs and you guys and things like yeah. that, that that really the, the scene wasn't really the city scene. So we wanted to start this little magazine, Vibrations, that would just create this kind of resource that that everybody could be part of. So we, you know, did some early Pigeon Detectives gigs and you know would write about you guys and the Kaiser Chiefs and and I think that then became a bit of a template for my work that as well as wanting to be in a band, you could kind of get a lot of what you wanted from the creative process and working with other creatives by creating a resource that 
yeah, almost kind of like it was your contribution as well as your creative practice. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that totally. I mean, it, it is interesting what you say, really. I mean, so I, I mean, I don't think we've ever really met properly, me and you. And as you say, it was more, I, you know, I sort of associate Ryan very much with Iger. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, I've always known of your involvement, but as you've alluded to, we were, yeah, we were quite involved with, with, with Ryan down there in terms of, when we left Soundworks, we needed somewhere to go. And Ryan was uh, Ryan was just in the process of starting to put it together, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I, I, like, as it kind of, like, pieces together, and I like how listening to other episodes of this, your memory sounds like my memory. <laughs> like, it's like, I think this is, this is how I make sense of the past. But how I kind of make sense of it is that it, there was that area that is the old studio area yeah. where you had a permanent room. And Ryan had kind of built this really nice studio. And yeah. he was just like a really, really, you know, he was really into what he was doing. But he was also kind of building and doing those things in the early 2000s that probably provided a, a bit of spare cash that most people in music didn't have, really. So mm-hmm. he built this really beautiful space. And then I think, really, he asked me to get involved. And, uh, and at first, it was going to be kind of to help his project really he invited yeah. me down somebody else had said to him look if you if you kind of market and if you're communicating with bands like jack's a guy because at that time i probably had more bands phone numbers mm. than anybody else in the yeah. city really I'd, I'd done this magazine i was putting on a lot of gigs um there's probably a couple of other people people like whiskers that had a you know a similar kind of relationship with the bands in the city um and then we just couldn't really work out what he'd pay me because essentially apart from you guys it wasn't really an operational it wasn't a public a public thing i kind of feel like there was this period when you and ryan were there when Mm. it was like uh it was a bit of a private thing really it was like a bolt hole for you lot um he he was doing his thing and i think when i get involved it kind of becomes eager as a kind of public Mm. thing that's that's how it feels to me i see i see what you're saying yeah definitely um and that's certainly how it felt like. Like you say, we had that room permanently down there. And we had that big storeroom next to it that just had all our fucking massive mounting of gear in, which was always a nightmare. And like you say, Ryan had that really nice studio room that he'd, he'd put together. And as you've alluded to, that's where we were, you know, sort of starting to to make noises for the fourth album, actually. And Ryan was... I mean, we'll get Ryan on himself, to be honest, and talk about this as well. But certainly from your perspective too, you know, Ryan was heavily involved in what we were doing. Do you know what I mean? He was he was like engineering us, but he was doing more than that. Do you know what I mean? I like he was, he was almost becoming part of the band. That, yeah, wow. exactly. That's how, that's how it felt. I mean, I, I, I remember a point where, yeah, you were recording the fourth album and I heard snippets of it. And I, honestly, like there's one song and I've never, I've obviously I've not heard this in like, what, 12 years, however long. But mm. it, it was like one of the best things I've heard. It kind of sounded, you won't, you won't remember it, sounded a bit like the delays. Like it sounded slightly more majory than most of the stuff you guys do. Um, oh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. But I remember I remember Ryan was kind of, the feeling I got was that if that fourth album would have happened, he might have come and kind of played with you and maybe yeah. been a kind of like, you know, um, a, a fifth member, you know. That yeah. Kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's interesting you see it like that, to be honest, because that is that is kind of where it was going. I mean, he was doing some really cool stuff, which I'm sure he's still doing now, some really cool stuff um, with Beats um, and working quite closely with Phil, uh, you know, coming up with some really cool vibes. And we were, I mean, like exactly like you say, he was kind of becoming, like like you say, the fifth member. And I'd imagine if it, if we had made that record, that, that you know, it, it might have made sense for him to to come out on tour and stuff because I mean um, there was all kinds of really great tracks and I don't want to give away kind of too much about things but I mean you know everyone knows that this material exists do you know what I mean I don't think there's any secret there but like you say um, it was fascinating to me uh, sort of un- unpacking all these memories again out of my mind um, allowing myself to to even go back and listen to those sorts of things and <laughs> It was a kind of a bit of a kicker listening to some of that fourth album stuff because, like you say, you're just like this is great. Do you know what I mean? And and it's like it, it's bit sweet. It's bit sweet, I suppose, because you're like, wow, that's this stuff's fucking ace. And then you're like, yeah, oh, right, okay. So why? <laughs> do you know what I mean? And then but that opens a kind of worms in your own head. But like you say, there there are some great tracks, and and Ryan was really integral. Um, to the vibe on those definitely and I guess I I mean like you say I guess from there because I think at that I think then the next progression for Iger was uh, what is now 
the live room with you know where the reception is and then you the the big the kind of the, the huge room behind that the, i don't know did you do club nights and stuff in there or do you still still do club nights in there yeah so 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 I think then there was kind of like the venue and the reception was in a different place. I don't know if you remember. The reception like now is what we would call kind of room seven is right. an actual rehearsal room. But I, I remember chatting to, yeah, chatting to you a lot before. I mean, it was before even, I think, you know, there was definitely a point where you were having kind of rehearsals for final gigs. But I remember yeah. a period before that where it was still, it was a bit light, it's a bit lighter and it wasn't quite final, you know, um, but I remember chatting to you all, yeah, in, in in what was the old reception. And then we kind of just had four rehearsal rooms and Last Gang were there for a bit. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it was interesting, really, because I guess this is kind of 2007 and it was just starting to kind of, it was just starting to get going. But at the same time, there was this kind of turn that I think you see in kind of like at least British music, but probably beyond that, um, mm -hmm. kind of away from guitar bands slightly. So yeah, there's definitely. that moment with kind of LaRue and MGMT and it kind of yeah. feels like a post-Franz Ferdinand thing to me. Um, yeah. As drums got more important, you know, all those indie bands that definitely I grew up on, like the drums and the bass were nowhere. It, like they were just playing along, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this move, and, and I kind of feel like Leeds had kind of slightly banked the house on indie guitar bands so it was like so at the same time you kind of as as i guess kind of developing and uh, you know it's always been definitely in my life um you know i'm always so thankful to to have done it really it's like you know having having kind of messed up everything partly from wanting to be in a band so much that you kind of don't travel and you don't finish you know i didn't go to uni in some kind of late 20s or whatever and you know you don't you don't deal with long-term relationships properly and all these kind of things but one of the things that kind of set me on a path uh, as I went kind of towards my end of my 20s and into my 30s, I've really kind of sorted myself out. Was I good? Because before that, I, I was promoting, really. And promoting is just like so feast and famine. It's just like you either get paid to 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 do a show and you're like, you kind of can't believe that you've got paid to do that because you did <laughs> right. absolutely nothing. There were loads of people there. You've been paid pretty well. Or you're like, yeah, like, like I say, I mean, I spent loads of my 20s in shoes that just didn't, that had holes in because you were just living so close to the breadline and yeah so yeah so so it's interesting really because i could definitely for me is um yeah it's a part of life becoming a bit more solid really which it's kind of an interesting kind of like almost paradox really because it's definitely part of my life in music and uh you know for i guess a lot of the music industry is just very erratic and and, and not very stable but yeah. but Iger has kind of performed that role really as as i imagine some people you know maybe feet for you, there was kind of like a couple of tunes that have kind of maybe been a bedrock of some earnings or something like that. And it's like, there are these moments where you're just like, fuck, you like, thank God that happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, without doubt. Without doubt, man. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, I think as well, sort of reflecting a bit more and going back to what you were saying about that fourth album and like what you said about how the, the change in music as a whole around 2007, 2008 with your LaRue's and your MGMT's and stuff. I think there's an argument to be said for the fact that I think we kind of fell victim to that in a way. Um, and I thought it was interesting when I was talking to Nick Hodgson from the Kaiser Chiefs and it's slightly different circumstance, but in the same way that when he left, it, it was because he felt that they were no longer kind of relevant in the landscape. Do you know what I mean? I think that, certainly played a role in the fact that you know i don't know how you describe it us losing the hunger to put out that that fourth record do you know what i mean and i think that well, well um yes yeah, so i just I, I wonder as well though if like you the sunshine underground kind of the stone roses some of those some of that that kind of sound to me it still feels apart from screamadelica maybe slightly unfinished business for british music i kind of like all for 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 kind of rock and roll music really i kind of feel like there's been you know obviously you do have like lcd sound system a couple of bands that have really kind of like you know done something but i don't know like it it does feel like you probably would have made sense actually you know whereas a lot of the kind of indie guitar bands i think just especially, you know, with the kind of politics changing in 2010s, I think a lot of the indie guitar bands were tied to something that maybe was, maybe looked a bit male and looked, looked very kind of like part of something else. And I, yeah, I kind yeah. of wonder whether you, the Sunshine Underground, actually would have been a couple of the bands that, that maybe kind of would have made sense in that, in that light. Hmm. Yeah, no, uh, that's an interesting point. 
That's an interesting point, to be honest. Um, are you sort of alluding to the fact that that whole scene carries with it, um, you know, something that's not kind of part of, as much as part of culture nowadays? Do you know what I mean? What, the kind of, the indie scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like I the think... masculinity side of it, do you know, the lad side of it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think that it's kind of like a really interesting one because... I can really see how people look back now at like the mid nineties or the kind of early two thousands and see a load of white guys <laughs> and think, wow, this was just like loads of white men just going around doing what they do. I think rightly so. I think people probably feel like the role for women in those scenes was really questionable and was, mm-hmm. was not, was not kind of equal. But on the other hand, I think what probably is missing in those kind of analysis really is that the white guys that wanted to be singers or guitarists or bass players or drummers were probably also the same people that questioned men's roles in society. So for me, um, you know, growing up and going to school in Seacroft in kind of the mid-90s, I think the reason that I fell in love with Oasis was they gave me a kind of emotional language, but they also looked like they they got an area, you know, Burnage, they got got an area like Seacroft, whereas for me, Radiohead or hot chip that I might look back and uh, yeah. later on get into like it was always going to be a verve or an oasis that said um they gave me some kind of sense of what what men could be but I can see how that looks really male looking back but at the time we I guess we were the kind of outliers that were rejecting standard male ideas of what it was to be maybe growing hair and you know <laughs> being a bit more emotionally literate you know well yeah, there's certainly an element to that I, I would say um I certainly never associated us with that sort of, no. well, like you say, I always, do you know what I mean? But, I, you know, I suppose saying that, you could say indie was a very male-driven thing, which it was, but, you know, you had, you know, Elastica and Sleeper and bands like that. Do you know what I mean? You had some you had some really cool, prominent female musicians at the time. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Um, but Yeah, and I guess, I guess what I was saying was that you and maybe bands like Sunshine Underground and a couple of others actually feel like, there's something different kind of going on yeah. there. Like it's not just, you know, indie music. As, as I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, Certainly. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Something kind yeah. of like slightly almost uh, uh, transcendental that's been aimed at, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. Yeah, and I, th- I suppose, they're, they're, I suppose they're, well, whether it's an irony or not, but I don't know, man. It's kind of like as we sit here now, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that kind of, it would fit in now. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When you when you think about it, and um, you, you think about that fourth record and the noises we were making, and you know, even myself listening back to it now, just you know, well, I, I refer to it as the fourth record. You know, a, a batch of songs that would have made up the fourth record. Um, you do listen back and you think this is fly now, man. Do you know what I mean? This <laughs> is uh, this would be absolutely awesome. There's uh, definitely a fourth record there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found it interesting coming from the States. I, I don't know if the timing was different. Like there, it just seemed like corporate America had sunk their teeth into the music industry and every rock band sounded exactly the same. And it yeah. just, it just, it, to me, it got boring. You know, to me, it was like there were very few bands that were worth listening to. And that's when I heard the music and I was like, oh, these guys are not listening to the radio you know they're just playing music and that was so appealing to me i just love that you know it, it was almost like uh it was almost like when nirvana came out being you know, like before that it was groups like poison and bon jovi there was like nothing yeah, really yeah. of substance and all of a sudden there was this group that was just killing it that sounded great and that's kind of how i equated with the music too. i was like oh they are not influenced you know and i, I and I, i've always loved that about them because it really wasn't like they weren't trying to be something that uh you know would sell or would fit in they were basically playing what sounded good to them and then saying hey let's record this yeah exactly and i think it's something to be said and you touched on it as well jack that i think one of the easiest ways of looking at how we're different is like you say for a lot of music at that time the drums and the bass were just window dressing almost whereas you know for we've we've never made a record that that sounds generic do you know what i mean like none of our records have ever sounded generic and the fourth album material it sounds anything but generic if anything you know some of that stuff is even more well i don't know how you describe edgy i suppose some really edgy stuff in there uh definitely but yeah we never made music to fit a scene do you know what i mean like pete says we only ever it was just the sounds that we made do you know what i mean it, it was just I, yeah. the, the sounds that came out i think you were i mean maybe as well and this is kind of retrospectively hypothesizing but maybe you were also quite insulated from like a scene and the effects that scenes have in that my memory, because I remember being at Sponge Studios in what must have been 
98, 99. Yeah, yeah, man. I remember seeing a poster and it was like these, this new young band, like I'll have been like 18 and some, I think I might be like either the same age or one or two years older. And I remember seeing that they were, it was like they were playing a gig with like Tim Burgess was DJing or something like that. It was like, there was something to do with Tim Burgess for that. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, (laughs) I was like, you know, I'm like in a band, I'm like in a band, I'm like, what, like Tim Burgess is doing something with a Leeds band? What, what the hell? Like, you know, why is it not my (laughs) band? And, and I guess, you know, you were kind of unlike bands like, say, the Pigeon Detectives that are kind of born in, they're kind of born in a scene, right? And they play yeah. quite a lot with a lot of other bands that kind of post-Libertine scene. And then they kind of emerge out of it. All the Kaiser Chiefs that have been very part of the scene. I guess, I guess you had, yeah, you were probably kind of less um, subject to that because it, it kind of, it almost never felt like you came into the centre of Leeds to me. It felt like you kind of like, you kind of emerged out of Kipax and yeah. then you were off doing whatever you were doing. Yeah. But it didn't really feel like, I mean, obviously, you know, there were gigs like Blank Canvas or whatever, but, but it didn't really feel like you were a Leeds City centre no, band. No, that's very true. And it's interesting, actually. Um, something I was very aware of at the time was that even when we were young and we, you know, I mean, we, all, we it happened for us pretty quickly. But like you say, we were never part of a Leeds music scene. And um, it's funny you mentioned the name then, Whiskers. And like, did, I mean, do you remember the old, was it, in fact, weren't there like in a website, Leeds music scene? Yeah, there was, I mean... This was a massive part of the scene was Leeds Music Forum. And, That's it. And everybody, this was kind of before Facebook or anything. And everybody, I mean, there were chats on there between, yeah, the, you know, the Kaisers, the, the Pete Dockett, he would go on there. All, everybody you knew, really, in, in the music scene, while they were doing their kind of shit early jobs, yeah, we just spend all the time actually on Lee's music forum chatting about the music scene. It was incredible. So, was there a lot of resentment of the fact that this band kind of passed that bus station, slowing down and never really stopped? <laughs> well, I, I I don't think there was. I think there has been some kind of politics like that. But I actually think like there probably was. I mean, there's there's bounce for you know, like for bands like mine when you're twenty, you know. But I actually think that you weren't. You also sonically weren't really. In the same swim lane. Yeah, and it kind of just didn't really feel... It felt like kind of like people kind of broadly respected what you did. And I'm sure there were some people that kind of, um, you know, felt what they felt. But I kind of feel like you were doing something different. But there is a bit of a Kipak thing that's a bit different. Anyway, bands like kind of like, you know, Stu and Sniper Eyes and Ella Spectro and doing this kind of thing that really wasn't a kind of a Leeds City Centre. It wasn't Mm. really what the rest of Leeds was doing. So Mm. I kind of feel like you also kind of achieved escape velocity kind of before you could be involved in any politics. Yeah. Really. Well, exa- exactly. But I think that in itself brought in its own politics. Do you know what I mean? Like when I were, when I was sort of 15, 16 and we just started doing it, I did used to hover around Leeds Music Scene website and I did sort, and that's where I remember that name, Whiskers from. I'm sure I do, man. Um, and I'd, yeah, I got not, not a few spats like, but um, I were never shy of... What was your if, name? What was your name on the... Oh, I can't, I can't remember now, man. I think I'll just, that's a very good question. Try face wanker. <laughs> Fuck off, <laughs> me. No, I'm sure, like, I don't know. I'm just the type that back then, um, because like you say, we achieved trajectory quite fast and we had Tim Burgess DJing at his gigs and we were getting Steve Lamack talking about us on radio. I think there was... Um, and I can't, I can't, I can't speak from experience because, as you've alluded to, I, I you know, well, I, I don't think any of us, maybe Phil and Jen more now, but certainly not me. I've never, you know, I've like you said, I was just staying kickbacks, mate. That's all I do. I don't really go into the centre of Leeds. It's every time I'd see that place, it's changed so much. It's ridiculous. I just, I kind of remember. I won't call maybe not strong enough to be resentment. And I suppose there is something really crucial to take into account here. Um, and I suppose it's only just dawned on me really. Uh, probably the fact that. Back then, obviously, um, I was diagnosed at 27 with ADHD and bipolar. So before that, I was totally unmedicated. And one of my biggest traits, and to be honest, I still do it now, is taking what people say the wrong way. Do you know what I mean? And that can actually be magnified in, well, obviously it can be magnified in text communications because you lose so much context. But what I might remember as being a bit of needle or resentment could actually in reality not being needle in resentment. I'm willing to, <laughs> I am, I am willing to accept that, but I'm I just, think, go on. I, well, I think, I think the city, I mean, I was talking to somebody at the opening of an exhibition on Sunday, actually, we were kind of talking about Leeds and, and Yorkshire probably has been kind of like a place that has some kind of insecurity, but that manifests as kind of confidence. 
And and I've heard really similar things to what you're saying now from from the pigeon detectives, and their right. kind of sense, their sense that everybody kind of hated them. I mean, they had it slightly different in that they were genuinely week in week out playing amongst these bands. So yeah. I think that kind of familiarity breeds contempt thing. There were bands that sounded very like them, probably weren't as good as them, but sounded very like them who probably felt that they deserved the yeah. success um, they had. I mean, you guys probably, I think I remember chatting to you, you, and this will be about, yeah, this is 20 years ago, but in Joe's well, and maybe coming up to it, I got a feeling it's you and chatting to you. And I didn't know any of you at the time, obviously, like I kind of like over time got to know everyone, but, but telling you that Rob annoyed me and I really love Rob, like, and I really <laughs> like him. But I remember, I remember at the time, but it was just such you know i think it's hard as well to kind of remember what it was like in terms of like like now the bands and this might be about this might be about scenes just becoming very different uh mm. they're, they're much they're much more gender balanced all kinds of things like that but like singers in bands were like it, you were like the boxer that represent you know i remember being there with people who are now mm. good friends of mine but you just assumed the other thing, you know, you assumed all these kind of other things. And I think some of that kind of like, there were lots of good things that I, I mean, I, I love Oasis and love the Roses, but some of that stuff that you, um, you get from like an Ian Brown, that's just like very gladiatorial, very kind yeah. of like, you're just going to say things that are bonkers just to kind of like, just to kind of like probably disguise the fact that you're not actually that confident. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 So there's probably a lot of that that goes on in young kind of male scenes as well. Oh, yeah. People kind of, make a lot of presumptions about yeah. about things but i think i think for the whole you guys probably avoided a bit like 10,000 things i think yeah. because you and 10,000 things were almost before there was a proper music scene i think i think mm. the music scene happens in leeds a couple of years after and it's probably really propelled by the idea that you can come from kipax and you can do really well or you can be in 10,000 things like all those bands are probably what really energized a lot of the other bands that formed the scene afterwards. But I yeah. think you'd, you'd, you know, not enough people really knew you all personally for there mm. to be the same kind of gripes that probably went on between yeah. bands that really stuck around a bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you, it's interesting you talk about presuming other people's characters, do you know what I mean? Or sort of having a competitive element or something like that. But like you say, because we'd never been part of the scene and we'd never sort of been to into the city every every weekend to different venues watching different bands people didn't know us and i suppose more than that we didn't really know people you know we had a we had a few practices a few gigs a you know talent show where we got spotted by a, a, a really influential manager and you know that was like you say we were jetting off all over the place effectively from kipax and i think that was i think that was where we got whether you want to call it lucky i don't know but you know when you reflect on being in sponge seeing that poster up there and seeing tim burgess's name on it you know that was the idea man and that was like uh, and you know sat there thinking wow that's really cool wow what's he doing with the band from leeds that was the idea of that and that was you know that was that's tim biggin for you and that was what you know that what he instantly brought with his you know experience and contacts and who he was uh in the end and who he is in the industry do you know what i mean he he sort of brought that level of instant credibility do you know what i mean and that was such a cool thing for us you know obviously being that young and being massive charlatans fans ourselves you know what i mean just just that little thing for our christmas party um, and you know that was I think that was the first thing we actually did as the music. Do you know what I mean? That was the first show we officially did as the music. And yeah, that obviously, obviously that 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 really helped us. Tim Burgess DJing. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's no doubt that'll have shifted tickets, man, and got people down. But I guess that's you know there's there's an element of that's what it's all about. Do you know what I mean? The, the irony of that is that yeah, I, I'd it. never heard of the Charlatans or Tim Burgess, uh, and the, but the music had put leads on the map I, and i know it's anecdotal evidence i mean it's just me in in florida but that's definitely like i'm glad that you guys had those networking you know opportunities early but boy did you write your own ticket after that <laughs> yeah 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 oh definitely man definitely yeah yeah oh uh, yeah no i was just gonna say yeah going back to the kind of u.s thing i remember that being one of the things the the you know just seeing making videos in the US just just seemed because part of it as well I mean a bit like Tim Burgess or making videos in the US like I don't know how it felt to you but to me the music industry felt like something out there I remember hearing a story someone said about a kind of film star going back to their hometown and someone said what's it like out there and she said there is no out there and mm -hmm. and now as you get older you kind yeah. of you know you meet you meet these people you know like um 
yeah, you know, Morrissey being down at the studio or whatever, and you're like, and all his crew are just lovely, and they're kind of working people who've played with, like, you know, kind of like Tom Petty and whoever, and you're like, actually, this is a load of people who've just kind of committed, or they they care about music or art enough to kind of commit to it. Yeah. Um, and the whole industry kind of, you know, some of the some of the bullshit is real, but like a lot of the bullshit is about, like you were saying about corporate America, a lot of it's about the commodification of art really, isn't it? But when you were a kid, when you were a kid and yeah, you see like Tim Burgess, you're just like, yeah, it's like, well, you've gone, you've gone into this other world where Tim Burgess exists. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> so, he only exists to me on, in the enemy. I'm like, yeah, yeah. you're now in that world of the enemy. Right, right. I know what you mean. And it, that's a very interesting point in itself, because like you say, especially back then, or even now really, and it's an interesting point that, like you say, it's almost as if when you're 15, 16, 17, or even 18, I mean, obviously my experience ends quite young because we kind of jumped into the world of it. But, you know, other than that, it does just feel like some sort of unattainable black hole of, you know, almost look if you want to look at it with the wrong eyes. Do you know what I mean? If you kind of, and that's something that I found with maturity as well is, you, you know, having that combative, that combative element that you spoke about where, you know, when you're in a band and you're young and you see another band doing well, there's always that element of, well, well that should be us. Do you know what I mean? That should be us. And um, that was always, that was always difficult sort of, being in that world, like you say, because really it all it is is a world full of people who, well, it's difficult to say really, but it's talented people with drive. That and that's what's that's what that's what separates it. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I've learned from well, not that I've suddenly propelled myself back into it yet, but that's what I've learned from 10 years of being, well, just you know, effectively being completely off grid and not even creating and almost carrying that that almost carrying that league of gentlemen level of resentment of, you know, it's a shit business. Do you know what I mean? That whole thing. And to now sort of come back now and realize that it is just all about your own, your own drive and your own creativity. Yeah. And no, no one's going to fucking hand it to you, I, which is, I, I think what I wanted. I remember when I was like about 17, 18, and this would have been about the same period, but I remember going to creation and I didn't have any, I didn't have any recordings and I was like, basically, I had this day out, and I was probably having some kind of like slightly manic episode, mm. really. I just mm. went down to London, I went to Arista, I had copies of lyrics on sheets, but I didn't have any recordings of songs. <laughs> and I just wanted to meet people because I'm like, obviously going to be in the next Beatles. I mean, I'm obviously going to be in the next Beatles. I'm like, I've watched Oasis do it. I'm like, I can do that. Yeah. I was like, I can do that, but I could probably do even more than that. You know, wow. you, you know, um, at the time, you know, obviously you kind of like have a point in your 20s where you're like, some oh, yeah. of that probably, probably wasn't based in on reality that much. I mean, did, did you get through any doors? Did you actually get through yeah, any so doors? I had an argument with Paul Gallagher um, once, and I must have been, I was like 18, and it was probably about the second time I'd been to London, like maybe I'd been to the zoo or something. And like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. And I basically, like, I went into the office, and it was just after Liam had said, so Liam had left the um, American tour, and it's, it's this is six o'clock news stuff. I mean, I think this is the other thing that's probably hard for kind of people to really gauge really is every shop you went into had Oasis playing right had Ocean Colour scene yeah, it yeah. was like Massive. it was yeah even you know my dad who was kind of like there in the kind of late 60s early 70s was like it felt like it was coming again it felt like something was um, really happening yeah. um, and and so Liam's on the like you know Liam walking out of the tour is, is the head is the main it's the main British news of the day yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so, so he's getting out of the car and someone says to him someone says well what about the fans and he went, fuck the fans. And he just did, you know, he did a beautiful Liam kind of like bent over fuck off. Yeah. And, um, and, and I was in this in creation office. And for me, this was a sign that Liam had gone a bit bad at the time. It was like, you know what? He, he's not, you know, he's, he's not with us anymore or whatever. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I was like giving it all this. I was like, basically, he's a dickhead. I was basically like just going out. And then this guy's like, I'm a Gallagher. And it's like Paul Gallagher. Paul Gallagher's <laughs> just like, let's fucking chat about this. And I end up in this stupid like conversation with the third Gallagher. And I'm like 17. I've not even got any songs. So, <laughs> that's, some, um, that's, some, that's some brass neck, that, mate. No songs. Yeah. But the thing is, as well, is, you know, which, you know, is, and I see it now with young bands, is like, and I see it with young staff actually, that there's a kind of period, maybe up to about 22, 23 for, for lots of people. I mean, obviously these things change. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, in which you, you were unaware of what you're unaware of. 
So yeah. you, you kind of can't really fear failure because you've not, you know, for a lot of people, they've not really failed that badly yet. Um, you kind of don't really know how much everybody else knows because your presumption is that if everybody else knew something, they'd just talk about it. And then you get older and you're like, yeah, like people know about stuff that they just don't always talk about. So you're like, well, look, I'm the only one talking about whatever I'm talking about. You know, I've mm. I've written this song and this song's obviously great. Um, <laughs> and that can send you a long way, right? I mean, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you yeah. must have had moments where you look back maybe in your 30s and you were like, fucking hell, like... I just, you know, I, I talked to, do you know, Mickey P. Kerr, Mickey P. Kerr and Mark from Jack Afro, and they were getting signed by James Endicott at the time for 1965. Yeah. And they mm. were like, they turned up at this, they turned up at this gig and Kerr's just beautifully a mess. Like, I love him to bits. But he turned up to this gig and they, they'd basically been invited to play on this label that the guy that had brought the strokes to England signed the Libertines and they basically just turned up like with two acoustics but just like holding them kind of over the shoulders All right. like, and everybody was like who are these two northern guys and they just played these gigs and they were like totally like uh, on purpose like pronouncing Barat wrong and <laughs> and you like there's something about that age that's like if you yep. can utilize that energy like you and like other bands do it's like stratospheric things can happen that yeah. are very difficult to do when you start to realize some well, of the things you realize 30 plus you know yeah that's very very true and another in- interesting point um and i think like you say there's like a, a youthful exuberance that borders on almost insanity um yeah. do you know what i mean through yeah. through levels of confidence that you begin to build within your own bubble but then you get fed to you, you know through through other people helping you when you sort of you know make make it to the level that, that sort of we did but you know i don't know if you listen to it but I, fi- I found rob's episode really interesting obviously speaking from that sort of frontman perspective how he kind of felt that it was a, a it, you know it became a persona that he had to keep trying to maintain do you know what i mean even though in reality i think he was becoming what you might consider further and further away from the, there's no doubt there was a time where though where you know the the person he created and himself were one in the same but i think over time that those two began to drift apart until you know, Rob kind of felt like he was, like I said, trying to maintain those levels of those levels of whatever it is that, as you again say, propels you to to quite extreme lengths in some cases, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? That sort of that that belief in yourself and mm-hmm. that. But it's a fine balance in it. It's a it's a massively fine balance between that and believing your own your own hype and disappearing, you know, up yourself, so to speak, into in, you know, creatively. Yeah, I remember reading Richard Ashcroft saying something something along the lines of like, you know, if you don't believe you're gonna be if you come from like Wigan, if you don't believe you're gonna be the best in the world, like you're just not even gonna get out of Wigan, really, because because, and I guess, you know, and Kipak's will be the same and Eastern Park's the same. It's very yeah. different to kind of like, you know, if you you look at, you know, one of my bugbears, a lot of people's bugbears, but it's how, you know, just how inequality means that just so much of kind of like the British art scene is, you know, you see kids that have gone to fell in the same school, you know, like people that have got a network already when they're already kind of 15, 16. Yeah. Um, you know, or Julian Casablanca's dad works for the label and all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, and so... I do think that that somehow plays into, in a way that kind of crosses over with mental health, the kind of absurd reality you almost need Mm -hmm. if you're going to do it. You know, if you're going to be a footballer or if you're going to be a kind of musician, like realistically, you're not going to be able to just incrementally kind of get there from Kipax, you know, Mm -hmm. or Easter Bag. You're going to have to walk into some of those meetings with people that are gone to expensive schools or whatever yeah. and you're gonna have to look them in the eye and be like we can fucking do this and yeah. you know that's that's you, it kind of almost needs the the craziness of an 18 year old to do that sometimes yeah for sure yeah the power yeah. of confidence right yeah yeah yeah, yeah no, no doubt i mean like you say we went into those places with almost content <laughs> we didn't walk we didn't walk into record company meetings like oh my god we're in a record company do you know what i mean we honestly we walked into those places like yeah come on what we ain't got time for this seriously and, do you know what i mean think, and, do, do, do you think some of that i mean when i look at like you know some of the kind of like ian brown or ian brown john squire interviews and things like that i some of that I get the feeling for all of us is an inverted is that it is is that it doesn't feel totally comfortable and that w- one thing you do learn especially in kind of you know northern cities and maybe not you know being in the kind of areas we've been in is it's one piece of armor 
is to be a bit fuck you about things, right? In, in, yeah. that, in that, like, whereas somebody, you know, somebody who feels like, well, yeah, of course, you know, I, I grew up and people came around to the house who were famous, kind of like, whatever, and did this. Like, they're like, yeah, look, I'm going to be welcomed here. I don't have to put on a front. I don't have to pretend that I'm amazing. I might even tell you that we've done some new demos. I'm not really sure about them. But yeah. You don't feel like that as a kind of northern guy in the 90s. You feel like I've got to tell you that, like, you know, the Beatles are shit. Like, I, the Beatles are shit, like, you know. <laughs> Well, like Johnny Burrell, I mean, I don't know if you you remember those early interviews of Johnny Burrell where he just kept banging on about how Dylan's first album wasn't very good. And it's like, well, <laughs> Dylan did a set of covers of folk. Like, of, you know, it's not, but you're not writing blood on the tracks, are you? you know? <laughs> but, but did you, did, I'm, I'm interested, I guess, did you, did you have moments in this period that you've kind of had off? Did you have moments when it looked like another life when you were like, I can't even get into the mindset of who yeah. that person is? Because I remember seeing you a lot at, I think a V festival and it was just, in, it was just incredible. And, you know, it, 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 there's obviously something kind of mesmerizing between you all, like some kind mm-hmm. of special thing. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you have a period where you, you feel on the outside of that, it must be hard to almost imagine yourself, right? Yeah, man. Fucking hell. I mean, Christ. Fucking, it's pretty emotional. Um, yeah, man. Like exactly that. I, you know, I've lost complete fucking perspective on it in terms of what we did, what we achieved or, or, or anything. Or, um, and like you say, it felt like not only another life, which it, it felt like it, it's fucking hard. It's really hard to describe, to be honest. But yeah, you, you're absolutely right. In that 10 year period, even really early on, man, like maybe after a year, 18 months, especially when you consider how often we used to play together. If we want touring, we were writing at least, you know, at least once a week, even when we weren't really doing much. Um, and then even after, you know, a year and, and then 18 months, it's like it got to the point where it were almost like something that existed inside, you know, like a Christmas, what the fuck, your snow globe. Snow Do you know globe. what I mean? It, yeah, it was almost like a permanent photograph locked in like a fucking snow globe. You know what I mean? And the, you could still obviously see because it's, it's, you know, it's there, but... You know, it just in, in, inanimate. Do you know what I mean? It, it was just it. It became completely inanimate to me. Did um, did the all of it, all of it really it became inanimate to the point where, like you say, it felt like another life, and I couldn't put myself back in those shoes. For love no money, I couldn't put myself back in those shoes mentally. Why, why do you think that was? Um, I suppose. Well, you know, because it had been such a huge, enormous part of all of our lives. And again, on this podcast, I often say I speak for myself, you know, so because it had been the whole of my life, you know, my, my focus and everything that obviously coming to an end, um, well, no doubt, it, I've made no secret of how difficult it was to sort of get through that and what I had to do to myself in terms of, you know, sort of hardening off, if you know what I mean, you know what I mean? Sort of becoming like, all right, I'm going to have to fucking develop a third or fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth layer of skin Hmm. to deal, to deal with this situation. Um, But I mean, I suppose as well, Jack, was the fact that we didn't talk after we kind of split up, you know what I mean? We all went separate ways. So I suppose that will have contributed enormously to you know, those feelings of not only loss, but complete disassociation. Do you know what I mean? A, com- a complete disassociation with, well, everything. Do you know what I mean? Even in terms of my accurate recollection of events and of, of feelings and stuff like that. And um, it, well, it's, it's amazing what the mind can do, isn't it? It's fucking amazing what the brain can do where it's like, all right, little man, you just sit down and let, let me create a new reality for you. And I'll just sweep everything else away don't you worry you just you fucking stare over there keep staring over there do you know what i mean while i just in the background i'll sweep all this shit away and then when you come back it'll all be nice and tidy and then you can leave the fucking door locked if you want or if for whatever reason one day you want to open it there's a fucking key on the side do you know what i mean it i guess it was that situation but yeah certainly the fact we didn't talk and i guess i guess in some way we kind of often we're reliant on kind of narratives to get through, right? Like just to get through the other side, you yeah. guess if you've had this kind of relationship with three people that you love and whatever, for that to kind of break down in some sense, you kind of need some, some way of just getting, getting through, don't you really? So Coping, I imagine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, the past 30 episodes of this has been a, a lot of uh, a, a sort of a, a journey of that, you know, that uh, of that morphing from, you know, those early conversations, the early practice at Iger Studios, which everybody saw on Twitter. And then just uh, the band just, you know, one by one interviewing, talking to each other and uh, and just starting to grow closer and, you know, working towards Temple Newsom. And but it's been really interesting to see that unfold and to see see Adam regain some level of confidence in his own musical ability, you know, and remember, oh, wait, I am pretty good at this thing and <laughs> I can create it. I don't have to just look back on what happened, you know, 20 years ago. I am still creative and can create. So that's been a pretty exciting thing to see. Yeah. But the, the listening part definitely felt like a moment, like uh, there was mm-hmm. something kind of like, I, and I guess this is one thing that kind of interests me um, about you all. And, and I think the roses have a similar thing. There's something kind of like almost metaphysical. And I don't know, I don't really know what it is really. And, and I guess, you know, a lot of, a lot of bands kind of root like they they kind of carry on and you know maybe like i mean i love oasis but you know by however album nine or whatever you know yeah. i was a bit like i think you just you know slightly going through the motions there um but but it feels like with definitely with the roses feels like a similar comparison to you lot in terms of like there's something kind of magical and sensitive that like we can either not do or or we're, or we're in and, and yeah. this is going to be emotional and it might be you know, it doesn't really feel as tempestuous for you lot now as no, it does no. with the roses. But I, you know, I remember seeing some um, some some roses to from the actual comeback, and these guys are like fifty, and they're still kind of like really fucked off with each other. And it's like it's thinking that Reddy starts. Reddy starts kind of like the songs, like he's kind of trying to really fuck the band up, you know. But, yeah, but that's kind of part of the magic of it as well, you know. But, but I wonder if for you, for you lot, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of almost like uh, some kind of law of kind of things create their their opposite force in that the kind of difficulty and you know you know all that stuff and kind of coming back together, you know whether whether it's kind of equal to something that's kind of special about the band because it mm. definitely felt that with the listening part. The listening part felt like something. No yeah. strange was going on right yeah absolutely mate it, absolutely fucking insane um yeah it was the uh, you know the the sort it was of like manic it was like almost like you know when people come out of like ayahuasca retreats or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. thing has just kind of shifted you know yeah, it was a, yeah, obviously a massive seismic moment for all of us. I, I would, I'm sure, and for me, um, again speaking for myself, such a seismic moment in my life. Obviously, um, us lot talking again and then the, the, the listening party and you know we do i mean we inevitably we talk about it a lot of this fucking podcast we are, we're gonna because you know that's kind of the the central theme of it at the moment leading up to the to the show and everything and it just being a, a whole a celebration of something that you know because for our, our fans we just we just disappeared didn't we uh, you know especially because we would i think you know we were just before social media really really took off yeah. you know obviously it was there don't get me wrong i, but I no. feel like you'd almost disappeared before you disappeared like when you were down mm-hmm. at Iger and you were making this incredible stuff but i still feel like my senses uh you know and you see this in kind of discussions on twitter i, I have this sense that you know some of those days i remember just going into the studio and listening to stuff that you just all been kind of playing but yeah. even that is some kind of dark ages, really. That it's it exists, but it kind of you know it's it it didn't exist in a way that now you know presumably people be on Instagram being like you know we've just been working mm-hmm. on this or whatever. And it's, exactly, yeah. So you yeah. had the opportunity um, working at Iger to just go in and sit in on the practices and just watch them rehearse, yeah, or I, d- I, d- I didn't really watch the practices apart from I did hear the last practices before the last gigs and i think we you mm. playing you, I, I came to one of the 202 gigs which is great and, yeah. and were you playing fuji rocks as well uh, with that feels like the kind of yeah. the ending it, things but, but yeah, right. it was, it, you know it was it, 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 that was kind of incredible but it was more really to you know to go back to the kind of early part of this discussion really mm. it, it kind of felt like what you were all doing and ryan was kind of like part of was like i don't know like yeah it was interesting you know like that band that because i remember you would talk about Armin van Helder on one of these other things, but it was like, yeah, you're just like kind of demoing this stuff that's just getting sent to Armin van Helder from Beeston. And it's like, <laughs> this is a bit fucking weird. This is actually, <laughs> but, but yeah, listening to the stuff, I mean, the, the stuff, uh, there is this one track that I, I've got here at some point. I mean, uh, I mean, what's, what, what's, what's your feelings about that stuff? Uh, Wait, you have point. a track that's not been released? No, is what you're saying? I, 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 no, but it is somewhere. And I, I just got a feeling I, Ryan must have that stuff. Mm, Ryan yeah, must have that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's yeah. this one song, there's this one song that's kind of like 
it's got some guitar that's almost sounds like steel pans. It's like it's very majory for I know my, sense of, my sense yeah. of the music. And it's mm-hmm. like all I remember is it's like one of the best things I've heard. Mm-hmm. And that Play was, it. I don't know. Where, Play yeah. it. Yeah, if you got it there, you could you could pop it on now. <laughs> yeah, I mean to be fair, like you say, in terms of what happened to that stuff, it's you know, it, it it's since been collated, do you know what I mean? Um we've well, you know, we've got copies of it. I don't know if Ryan's still got the you know, the file, the actual stems in the session, so to speak. But we, you know, we've got the songs and that's what I'm saying, man. That's what I've listened back to recently. And I mean, you know, without saying too much, I'd, well, I'd, I, I don't know what we're going to do with all that stuff. But in my in my own personal mind, some of that shit is... I'm thinking kinda... number one album around the Temple of <laughs> Music. That's what I, Wouldn't that's that be amazing? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Well, I, I mean, guess that's the beauty as well of kind of like for my my kind of memory is. I mean, my my memory that, that are also hazy, but that it kind of seemed difficult between you all. And I and I guess from the outside, I remember someone in the roses talking about everybody else being like the speckles on an egg, and we were kind of in the egg. And and that's how it felt with you lot. It was like there's some kind of dynamics going on here. I don't really know what they are, but the music never, you know, unlike a band like say Oasis or you yeah. know perhaps yeah. Richard Ashcroft and other people that have kind of like carried on doing their art and that's cool, that's not anything. But it kind of feels like you were still making stuff that was mm-hmm. up there. Yeah. Oh yeah, some of their last stuff that they released, in my opinion, was some of the best. I mean, No Danger and <laughs> Ghost Hands is amazing. <laughs> yeah, you guys are making like, you literally finished with some of the best stuff. So I, there's definitely, yeah, had, that, that had some legs, that group. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like you say, there was, there was different dynamics um, back then to... To what to what there are now. I mean, you know, the, the everyone who listens to these podcasts knows really now that ultimately we were, you know, we were just kind of burnt out. And I think the dynamics that you speak of, I think as much as anything, probably prevented us from realizing what we still had. If you know what I mean, because yeah, we, totally. we we had lot. I mean, I'm sure you'll know this yourself. You can be in a situation so long, or even not, but you can be in a situation and very easily, very easily lose any sense of reasonable context. And it, it you know, it takes someone outside to be strong enough and influential enough at the time to go, "Hey, oh, you've you've got this wrong." You know what I mean? You, you're not you're not fully grasping everything that's going on here. But without those people. Um, you know, there's quite a few people who said to us, I think it was even Rick, uh, Rick McNamara kind of alluded to the just just fucking sit down and bash your heads together and <laughs> sort out whatever the issue is. But I don't know, it's weird, isn't it? Some shit just goes so far to the yeah. point where it becomes difficult to address. Mm-hmm. I think men as well, men as well, you know, in their kind of like 20s, you know, yeah. when I and, and having known each other so long, your kind of dynamics will have been set when you were kind of 16, 17, weren't there? I, exactly. I heard in a, a, one of the chats, I think it was with uh, Rick McNamara, how you are Robert come back from being around the Kasabian and said you know they kind of communicate about things and obviously all of us now you know like I I don't know if any of you are into kind of Brené Brown but she's kind of all about kind of like purposefully having vulnerable chats where like you yeah, yeah. you need to you, you know almost on a daily definitely a weekly basis we yeah. have awkward chats at work because it's almost like taking the the lid off the pressure cooker and, and nothing gets too bad. Mm, but I've yeah. had you know relationships that have broken down because after two years you've not had one argument, but that's not a good thing. You know, yeah. you could have done with having a lot of smaller arguments along the way and learning the skills to kind of just yeah have conflict in a safe way, I guess. Well, yeah, that's a very very sort of well, I suppose that's a mature way of putting it in it because that's what we completely lacked. And like you say, uh, having the maturity now to kind of look back at things that grew and grew and strange resentments that grew and grew. And, you know, you get into a position where you, you sat there and you you imagine that someone's done something that they hadn't done and you get mad at them about it. And then when you see them, you're like, I fucking did that. When they didn't even do, you know, you can get yourself into such a, a bizarre, you know, just where what you kind of perceive as reality often often isn't really but it's it's fascinating what you say about sort of taking the lid off and i think that's true in every walk of life relationships families working relationships in and i and to be honest with me and my character i kind of make that point with new people that i spend a lot of time with i, I purposefully say to him i say look you, you know if i if i ever do anything that upsets you or anything like that please do just address it soon enough that you can just say oh can we just talk about that do you know what i mean rather than waiting months and then going you know and then kicking off at me you know what i mean because 
that, and I suppose like that's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? It's about addressing things early enough so they don't turn into something that uh, ultimately can rip your band apart. <laughs> Not that, I mean, not, you know, not that they were the only factors. There were all kind of factors in, in why we never released that record. It's just difficult to always remember them. It, well, it's kind of difficult to remember them now. Do you know what I mean? Now when I'm looking at things so positively. I'm not even to remember much, really, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, man, I did, want to, I did want to touch a bit about on um, Hyde Park Book Club, really, and sort yeah, of what, yeah. the, what the vibe is there, man. It sounds, sounds really cool. And, you know, to be honest... As I'm doing more and more stuff, I'm going to be looking at somewhere where I sort of feel safe enough to, you know, do my first shows. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I definitely of... will. I'll, I'll send you what is it after this? I'm going to send you some dates. We'll uh, book something. Else. <laughs> Fucking We're on it. We're on it. In fact, in fact, I've always tried to get you guys in the Sunshine Underground together in some form, and a couple of them live pretty much across the road, so maybe they can come and play some records at your. Uh, First yeah, thing. Be- they've got they've got a new interesting uh, project going. Um, oh, right. But yeah, the book club. I mean, it's it's a real interesting one, really, because it has a lot of parallels with I get in that when I started both, I thought there'd be side projects. Like right. when we started Iger, I was promoting and and I was like, I basically had never had any money and had a bit of extra money because promoting was going well. And I was like, you know, Ryan had said, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, yeah, like I'll do it. But it was, I was, I never thought this is going to be a big thing. And in the end, you know, probably going back to uni was the stability that Iger gave me. I, you know, I lived in York for a year, lived in London for a couple of years, but still worked on Iger. And it's similar with a book club. Like, so I, I'd gone back to uni and I kind of had this period where, this is probably around the time of Iger, 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And I'd just been around guitar music so long. And I kind of think the scene in Leeds was, it was just very hedonistic, really. And I, and I guess I was starting to come to a point where, um, yeah, maybe it was, just wasn't that nourishing, really. Like, mm, you yeah. know, this is not to do with kind of like anybody else, but it was quite, it was a very boozy scene. It was very, very boozy, very hedonistic. And I, and I, I do remember kind of having nights out where you were kind of out with everybody in a scene, but you'd leave without saying bye to anyone and just having this kind of feeling that actually, like, I don't know if I'm out with anyone here, you know? And I kind of knew everybody and I kind of got to the point in Leeds where if I walked past a guy with long hair, uh, because I I didn't want anyone to think I'd ignore them, I I just presumed I'd know them and I'd just nod at them. I kind of felt very much like immersed in it. Um, But I'd kind of gone, so I'd gone back to uni and I studied, so I, I had this kind of moment where... I was early days of Iger. I'm putting on this club night at the Elbow Rooms and really enjoying it. I, th- I think Rob might have come and DJed it actually for a like, charity thing. Um, oh. And I, I, I don't know how. I remember reading a cartoon with Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, mm. and somehow I just started to read loads of philosophy and loads of politics, political theory and stuff. Um, and I'd gone back to, I'd gone back to, I had to do a, because I messed my A levels up so badly, 22 right. years running. Um, I'd, I'd, uh, gone back and done an access course, did my undergrad, um, gone over to York, done a master's. Um, but at this point, I've kind of like, I've, I've got really into kind of philosophy and politics. And I've started to see a bit, you know, parallels with what we were talking about earlier. The music scene has been kind of behind me, really. I was yeah. like, I, I actually kind of had got sick of how I am when I'm in kind of music scenes and art scenes. Um, and I don't know if it's because I just got a bit stoned too much when I was younger <laughs> or because I, I'm naturally really analytical, but I like, I kind of obsess over things, right? So a new piece of yeah. artwork, someone will do a new poster or a band will have Tim Burgess with them or whatever. And I'm like, fucking hell, I'm like, how does this link up with that? And yeah. someone will have like a new aesthetic on a poster. And I'm like, ah, what's that? There'll be a new heavy scene will emerge. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And, yeah. and my mind is filled with like really quite banal information about, I don't know, a, a, a 19-year-old band that have got two drummers, and I'm like, ah, two drummers. And I'm like, why do I give a fuck about any of this, right? Rialto. <laughs> I, don't yeah, I don't know. That is Rialto. <laughs> is it? Yeah, yeah. It, it feels like all that White Stripes video. Whatever. Oh, and then, right, yeah, yeah. And so I'd, I'd gone over to York, and I'd, I basically was kind of putting it behind me, and I really was looking to do a PhD or go work in politics, and a load of people were leaving York, and I only left Leeds for the first time to go do my masters in 
in York, really. And I just didn't want to come back to Leeds. I kind of felt like, I felt like I've left. I'm like, yeah. I've only been gone a year. Like, I don't really know what I'd come back to. Um, and you have that thing, I guess, when you're kind of in your early 30s in a music scene where you're like, it's kind of easier now at my age because I'm like definitely not 20. But you have that <laughs> awkward period and you kind of late, you know, you late 20s, early 30s where you're like, neither what you're becoming nor what you were. Yeah. And you kind of, you can't get up for it or excited about a kind of like an after party or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. Could, but you also can't really hang out with adults because you've just hung out with kids in bands forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, so I went and I left it and lived in London for a bit. And whilst I was there, I was just kind of, I guess, soaking in a new culture, kind of enjoying being out of Leeds, just taking in what I could. Um, and then the old petrol station that was a fancy dress shop on Hyde Park Corner had a room that was the old kiosk and it was just like it was basically just like the windows blacked out it's full of cardboard boxes and a friend said look like peppercorn rent like it's, it's nothing we can just take this over we can do a little thing and I was like a bit like Iger like really bad planning I was like ah oh, cool like well I'll get involved in this because this is just I'll just do it from Maid of Ale which is where we're living at the time right and then we started doing things like, so we cleared it all out. And at the time I was like living in London, I'd been on little trips to like Tokyo and Berlin and various places. And I'd kind of got a little sense of this kind of, I guess a, a bit of a globally developing aesthetic. I mean, I don't know if you remember before kind of Trump and Brexit, there was this kind of feeling I had that all global culture was kind of heading towards this almost singularity. We were mm -hmm. all just like, wherever you went in the world, there was a scene and yeah. a little a set of streets that had a very, probably because of like Instagram and things like that, there was just this similar aesthetic was developing. Street art was similar. So it seemed obvious to me really that Leeds had kind of stood still and especially Hyde Park student area. There mm. was like, there were the same cafes that felt the same as they'd felt in 2000. But you've got all these kids that are kind of soaking all this different culture. The internet has really exploded since then. Um, so we take it over, we've got nice coffee, nice beer, and I'm partly expecting Yorkshire people to like, put our windows through for like thinking we're a cereal cafe or something <laughs> um and i um and then we started to just do these little events so we did like people would come along and they'd be like look i, I just dj in my room but like i'd like to dj in public and um we had a really good member of staff mark crossley who was in jack afro and those bands and he was kind of really plugged into lots of the kind of art scene and the dj scene and because my background was kind of like events and culture, I was kind of like decent at just giving people space, I think. And I think that's what the book club has done best. And I think that's probably part of this spirit of the old lead scene is like just to kind of make space for other people. But people would come to me and they'd be like, you know, they want a DJ, they want to do a gig, or we had like a seance. And someone was like, oh. I just really, someone was like, I really want to do a seance. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> fucking this is great. I'm just yeah, like, I'm because, because at no point did I ever sit down and go like, I'm going to run a really well, in fact, I'm not going to run, you know, I, at no point was like, I'm going to run a well-functioning business. Like, probably like you, like all of my reference points are like Studio 54 or the Hacienda or I'm like, let's make this bonkers and interesting. Mm -hmm. And it was only kind of, you know, even an hour before we opened, I was like, well, how much are we going to charge for coffee? And we had no idea. We had to get a load of soft drinks from around the corner. Like, like we, <laughs> we, we were doing gigs like in the basement when there was like no stage or anything like that. Um, but then we had these kind of like, it just had this bonkers own energy of its own. Like we had like Gil Scott Heron's band played and I had this kind of beautiful moment at midnight on my birthday where Gil Scott Heron's daughter and Kim Jordan, these people that have played for like, Stevie Wonder are, are mm -hmm. singing like Stevie Wonder's happy birthday to me and I'm just like what the fuck's going on here and you know <laughs> and I think art scenes are kind of full of that really aren't they? That, you know there are times in your life where you're really pushing for something to happen but it's just not it's not really right for everybody else and then the other times where you're like you almost don't really want to get involved but there's a kind of force that's kind of making things happen and that's what the yeah. book club feels like really it feels like you know we've had some amazing staff and and I think as I've developed, really, you know, when I was younger and in bands, I was kind of probably like very kind of like uptight about like what I wanted things to sound like. And you yeah, know, yeah. I kind of remember real battles with people in bands. And I remember my dad once saying to me, you know, like, yeah, hey, you know, should maybe have some trumpet on that. And I'm like, I'm like, the Stone Roses do not have a trumpet. You know, <laughs> do not have a trumpet. I'm like, I'm not having a trumpet. Um, and then, and then I think as I got older and this kind of thing on this PhD that I'm doing is like, 
I use this thing called the capability approach. A lot of it really is about like the, the part of what we try to do with kind of structures, whether it's projects or whatever, is just kind of creating space for people to to kind of, you know, you might want to call it like flourishing or becoming a kind of whatever they're trying to become really. And I, yeah. think, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what the, the book club is partly about is about just creating space. And, uh, you know, there's been a techno scene there. There's been a jazz scene. There's a flower show. There's yeah. all these kind of different things, but like I didn't orchestrate it. I just made space, I think. Yeah. yeah, mm, yeah. Okay. It, that, it sounds really awesome, man. It sounds, you know, it sounds like, um, it sounds like somebody I should come down and check out. And to be honest as well, listening to you talk and you know, what sort of, uh, things you like musically and stuff and artistically i think you're gonna fucking really really like my next project man which i'm not gonna yeah, actually I can't say wait to hear it I can't wait yeah to hear man it. not gonna say t- too much about it now but um yeah uh it's gonna be fucking nice my next project uh yeah really excited about it man um but yeah it's it's been really cool to chat man really cool to chat and talk about and it's it's interesting you made me think about ryan as well and sort of that as that whole aspect and and all those tunes as well thinking thinking about all those tunes and yeah it, the, the book club sounds really awesome man and i'm gonna have to get down and check it out and like i say when i when i sort of get my confidence to because i think i'm gonna start <laughs> with somewhat like kind of like a patron note because i've got my own tickets patron. are on sale tomorrow tickets are on sale tomorrow <laughs> like, while, while we've been chatting i've been on c tickets I've got a picture of you when you were about 21. <laughs> it's chickens on sale. But yeah, man, I'll start off with like a patron only sort of invite only little mm, low key yeah. kind of cool thing just to, yeah. you know, find my feet and stuff. But yeah, that'd be that'd be really cool. Uh, I'd love you to do that, man. I'd love you to do that. I'm definitely gonna add it to my uh my tour when I come to Leeds uh, next year for the concert. <laughs> well, yeah, man. Yeah, whereabouts are you based, Pete? North Carolina, Raleigh. Oh, yeah. And I said the Michael Jordan, the, the Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 right by him. I was going to mention the last dance earlier. Have you both seen the last dance? I've not oh, actually. No, it's something I keep meaning to uh, watch. It's yeah. incredible, Adam. You were saying earlier about the way that the mind creates and these narratives. But mm-hmm. I, I, if you want like the most brilliant slash insane version of this, you've got to watch the last dance. So he 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 kind of owns up in the interviews that are kind of obviously years later yeah. that like he would have these you know game one of a series. He'd kind of invent that someone had said something awful to him. Yeah. And he'd play the rest of the series as if it, like, with a, with a grudge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He'd, he'd kind of almost like, he'd, he'd, he'd kind of make himself edge. believe it. Yeah. He'd make yeah, himself yeah. believe it. And then years later, he's just like, yeah, that didn't happen at all. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's incredible in that. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, nice one, right? Well, I mean, this has been a really great chat. I'd love to actually keep chatting. And, you know, to be honest, I'd like to have you on again. It's been yeah. much of a free-flowing free chat. Um, but, yeah, we will have to wrap it up there. But thank you very much for giving up your time and coming on, Jack. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on, mate. No, it's been lovely. Yeah, thanks for asking me. That's been really nice. Thanks both of you. No problem all, man. Thank you. And thank you all for listening, everyone. Speak to you later. Bye. 